Welcome, Bankless Nation, to this very special episode. Today, we are talking all about MakerDAO and the bull case behind MakerDAO. You guys all know MakerDAO. It's the organization. It's the uh, the DAO behind the DAI stablecoin, the first ever trustless stablecoin that crypto has ever seen. But I'll ask the listeners, do you really know MakerDAO? Have you really been paying attention to what's going on behind the scenes? Because in my mind, in, from my understanding, it's a DAO like none other. Uh, and MakerDAO has made fundamentally different choices, less about uh, different uh, smart contract design choices, but more about how the DAO operates, how the DAO is organized, and what is going on behind the scenes. Uh, I've been a, a long supporter of MakerDAO. Uh, before I started writing about Ethereum, I started writing about MakerDAO first. So I've been very close with the team and organization behind MakerDAO. They have been an organization since 2016 and has blossomed and grown since then. Uh, it really started very emergently. Uh, people that were just interested in figuring out how to produce a, a decentralized stablecoin all came together. This was before DeFi was a thing. This was before the ICO boom. Uh, MKR, the MKR token was minted and distributed to early stakeholders uh, and a, a treasury of MKR was maintained kind of as you see in the, the current DAO landscape. But again, this was in 2015 and 2016. Um, then the maker organization realized that they really needed to have real world footprint. They needed a centralized foundation. And the maker DAO turned into a foundation which, with like that operated as a typical company more normally would. And that foundation existed for, for years. Uh, and then that foundation was disbanded almost a year ago. And once again, the DAO, which started as a very emergent bottom-up organization, is now returned to a DAO structure. But it's not just a DAO structure. It's more a DAO of DAO structure. Uh, and maker governance really is just capital allocation decisions rather than, you know, voting on what the brand or icon should be or, you know, who should be able to tie their shoes with a snapshot vote. Uh, so entire companies work for the meta DAO, the bigger DAO, rather than just simply individuals in a discord. I think that there is a very strong bull case for MakerDAO that the market does not appreciate. And the market has never really fairly appreciated MakerDAO, at least in my opinion. And so we have brought on three MakerDAO community members to give the bull case for MakerDAO and to illuminate what is going on behind the scenes with MakerDAO. Because in my mind, it is a fantastic story that's very rich uh, and is, is extremely compelling and interesting. And so we are going to give out the bull case for MakerDAO here on this live stream. And so uh, with one last comment before we get started, this is a future, this is a, a coming up an experimental show model out of Bankless. Uh, future bullish blank shows are definitely going to be a thing. Uh, this is the bullish maker show, which I think is, has a compelling story, but I'm sure there are many other communities, many other DAOs, many other projects that have the bull case for that project, for that token that the rest of the market might not understand. So this is a new format that we're trying on Bankless. If you think that the market is underappreciating a particular token, a particular DAO, a particular community, here's what you need to do. Assemble a team, write down some notes, hit Bankless up on Twitter saying you've got the bull case for your particular token ready to go and you've got the team assembled to get it done. Uh, this, I think, will be a very fun show moving forward to help spread the alpha about what is going on behind the scenes with your particular favorite DAO. Uh, and we are getting started here with one of my favorite DAOs, MakerDAO, of course. So we will be right back to get into the show and the bull case for MakerDAO. Uh, teaser, they actually just uh, announced a, a uh, deal. Uh, they're financing a deal with Tesla. 
And this is something that the market just doesn't understand. It's a little ridiculous. And so we're going to get into all the details about MakerDAO and the bull case for MKR right after we talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. All right, Bankless Nation, here is our bull case for MKR, a bull case for MakerDAO panel. On the top left, we got Sam, who uh, is, all the three of these uh, are DAO members. We got top left is Sam. Bottom left, we got Monet Supply. You probably know him on Twitter. Uh, and then in the bottom right, we got Nick Kunkel, uh, who I've actually had the pleasure of spending uh, COVID time with. Nick and I went skiing a lot in, during, during COVID, and that, that has been a fun time. Uh, and so, guys, are you guys ready to get into the bull case for MakerDAO? Yes. Yeah. All right. Let's do this. I gave a little bit of an intro about the Maker Foundation, the origin, originating story about MakerDAO, but I want you guys to pick up the thread and take it from here. And, and Sam, I want to start with you. Just like, uh, let's zoom forward to the present. Like, what is MakerDAO? And what about MakerDAO is just so different than the typical DAO that people are familiar with? And, and also, just who is a part of MakerDAO? Like, who composes it? And how is, how is the culture of MakerDAO just different from other organizations that we find in DeFi? Sam, I'll start with you. Yeah, sure. Uh, first, thanks for having us, David, uh, and congrats on the Bankless Arena you got <laughs> today. You. Very, very Thank bullish you. news. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say uh, one of the big differences uh, between MakerDAO and other DAOs is we don't have an associated legal entity. Uh, we used to back in the day, the Maker Foundation, uh, people probably know that pretty well, but they are fully dissolved now. So like, uh, yeah, we're fully a DAO, um, no legal entity. That, that's an interesting piece. Another thing is that uh, we're completely sustainable. Uh, the protocol revenues more than pay for all the expenses of uh, running the workforce and you know paying out various uh, things on the protocol. Uh, so that that's something that's really interesting and unique, I think. Uh, in terms of who's involved, uh, there's a number of different groups in the DAO. Uh, we have what's called core units. This is like our main uh, unit of like workforce. So me, I'm on the protocol engineering core unit. So we're responsible for maintaining and building the uh, smart contracts for the core protocol as, as well as other things involved with that. You know, we have risk, we have uh, Monet's on that, uh, Nick's on the Oracle's team. Uh, so this is sort of the fundamental unit we have. Uh, we also have what are called mandated actors. Uh, and uh, so th these are sort of uh, elected people to sort of run the day-to-day -day operations of the protocol. Uh, this is sort of mixed in with uh, core unit facilitators. Uh, essentially, we have a once a week meeting um, that like we kind of uh, go over like and synchronize and stuff like that. Uh, there's also delegates which do the voting um, and there's maker holders and just the wider community. You know, anybody can be involved. Nick, what would you add on to that? Uh, how would you uh, illustrate the differences between MakerDAO and, and how MakerDAO came to be and how people think about DAOs these days? Um, well, well, okay. So, uh, right. I mean, we, we had the, the DAO, mm -hmm. right. Um, and, uh, right. Uh, right after, right before kind of the DAO blew up, right. You had, a every project was trying to be a DAO because we, we thought we had just discovered this, uh, new kind of social primitive and way of like, you know, of like collectivism, right. And so you had MakerDAO and you had DigixDAO and you had a couple, couple of these other ones, right? And then the DAO got hacked. Um, and then DAO was kind of a dirty word for a long time, right? Uh, Maker, we considered dropping the word DAO from our name, you know, for like a long time. And uh, now it's almost like enough time has elapsed that like DAOs are, um, 
like this idea that came back that people are like, no, wait, that was actually like, like a, a very useful uh, concept. Um, I, what, what I think kind of makes Maker like unique and, and special really is, is not just the way that we, we structure ourselves as a DAO, but the way that uh, we build is just very, uh, comes from a perspective that's very adversarial, right? Uh, we really think of like um, truly every little thing that could go wrong and try to have as little kind of direct human control or, or authority as possible. Uh, you know, we as, you know, the developers, like we don't have special knobs and switches of turning the, the system on or off or, or deactivating stuff or activating things, right? It's really completely controlled by maker governance. It's completely controlled by the maker token holders. And that type of full decentralization, I think is, is quite rare um, in, 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 in DeFi especially, right? Where uh, I, I, I think many teams take the argument that, oh, well, we need to be a little bit centralized at the start, right? In order to innovate quickly, to scale quickly. Uh, but then later, uh, they, they don't actually decentralize. And I think Maker is one of the few that really stuck to that promise and, and is following through on that. Manet, I want to get your perspective in on this as well. What are really the, the properties or characteristics about MakerDAO that stand out as unique and special that only really MakerDAO exhibits? I, I wouldn't say only MakerDAO exhibits this, sure. but um, I feel like the Maker community is really mission-focused. Um, you know, part of that might be from the token, you know, sort of stagnating, I think, in a certain way, but... It's um, people don't get into Maker because they're, you know, just hyped about number go up. Um, you know, we have a clear goal of making a really reliable um, financial system that people can trust and that that people can actually be safe to put their money in. And, um, you know, it attracts just kind of like a special committed group of people. Um, and I think, you know, other protocols really are striving for that, but maybe are still in the... Uh, uh, the like hype phase. That is something that I think stands out to me the most is the ability for Maker to retain the same talent that it had years ago. Uh, it, I find the same people, the same MakerDAO community members at every single MakerDAO event year after year after year. And, and for some reason, something about the Maker organization just retains developer attention and talent attention inside of it. And so it's the same cohort. It's always the same builders. And that's really, really rare in DeFi when there's just so much churn all of the time. Uh, people that seem to work for Maker tend to commit really, really hard to Maker. Mane, you, you kind of alluded to this. I want to ask this next, uh, this next question is, I've always thought the story behind the fundamentals of MakerDAO and then the MKR price on the secondary market to tell com two completely different stories. Like there is, I don't think there's any other DAO that has had so much thought and attention and like uh, attention to detail and conservative labor built into the protocol, yet none of these properties seem to be reflected in, in the MKR token. Uh, and so I want to get your guys' thoughts on like the historical price action of this thing as it relates to some of the fundamentals that have been built over the years. Like, is there like a curse on the MKR token? I just want to ask that question. Does the MKR price kind of feel cursed to you? Sam, I'll start with you. Uh, yeah. Um, so like, I mean, I, I've, 
I kind of went through a phase, I guess, where I was like, you know, concerned about the maker price and stuff like that. But at a certain point, you just kind of become numb to it. And all you can really do is just keep delivering on building fundamentals and stuff like that. And, you know, the price will catch up at some point. Um, you know, like the market can only remain irrational for so long kind of thing. So that's kind of the way I look at it. Nick, same question to you. Like, what's up with the MKR price? Uh, MakerDAO has been building so hard for so long. And just the, do, you, do you see like a, a discrepancy between the, the, what the story of the price is, being, uh, is telling versus what's actually happening with the fundamentals? Um, yeah, but I, but I think it's quite obvious how we kind of ended up here. Uh, there was never a focus on uh, trying to um, showcase MKR, trying to advertise MKR, to get MKR listed on exchanges, to build liquidity, uh, to incentivize liquidity, right? It was never just a focus. The focus was always die. And the, I think the rationale was quite reasonable, right? Uh, make die have utility, make die useful, scale die as much as you can. And if die is successful, uh, by proxy, MKR becomes successful, right? Um, all of the uh, profits that are generated by the system, right, are diverted to MKR token holders. And uh, so it's really one of those things that in the end, it'll work itself out. Uh, yeah, I think that you make a, a really, really good point. Part of the legacy of the Maker Foundation, uh, from what I've gathered from being an outside observer, is that the legal side of the Maker Foundation really hamstrung the marketability of the MKR token, right? Like we can talk about DAI, we can talk about the contracts, getting a vault, all that stuff. But in a industry which clamors for attention, the, the, the legal side of, uh, and the compliance side of the foundation was like, you guys can't talk about MKR. Uh, Manet, would you agree that that was, that was kind of one of the influencing cultures of the MakerDAO as a result of the foundation is that there was a removal of a culture of attention to put on the, on the MKR token? Yeah, I think that um, I, I imagine that a lot of that was like some legal influence, but I think it's also, um, you know, kind of goes back to just the discipline of the project, which, um, you know, if, if you just are disciplined and you keep doing the right things for long enough, like it does pay off. Um, and I think there's, you know, lots of advanced new tokenomics that we've seen people deploy in the last couple of years. Um, a lot of that is like kind of very flywheel based where you can accelerate your growth. Um, but then, you know, on, on the reverse, it also, you know, kind of accelerates your decline. Um, and I think maker has just been very sort of, um, conservative about those sort of changes. Like we don't want to like over leverage ourselves and put die holders in a position where their, their funds are at risk. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's like not surprising that, you don't see the maker token rallying as much in a bull market, uh, but hopefully it won't be crashing in a, in a bear market as much. Mm -hmm. And I do remember the MKR token was one of the leading tokens in the 2018 to 2020 bear market. Uh, it was kind of where a lot of people put their attention, including, including myself. All right, guys. So there are so many subjects to get into. We're going to talk about uh, the supply of dye, where supply comes from, the demand for dye. 
how demand, uh, how demand is induced into DAI. We're going to talk about makers' uh, penetration into real-world assets. We're also going to talk about makers' L222 strategy and then also finish off with maker tokenomics. Each one of these subjects has just some insane development and progress to talk, to, to talk about. So, uh, But before we get into all of those things, I want to talk about just like the meta goals of the MakerDAO protocol. What are the goals of Maker? What does the protocol want? Does the protocol want... Something just fell off of my desk, sorry. Does, uh, the, what does the protocol want? Die number, die supply to go up, loan fees to go up. Like, what are the really bullish metrics for MakerDAO that you guys are trying to, to optimize for? And Munay, I'll throw it back to you on that one. I think total die supply, um, and then also like usage and integrations across different platforms, you know, being able to use it in real commerce, um, as well as just, you know, DeFi. Um, and then I think kind of more directly to the bottom line, like what's our actual like amount of die that's being generated through, um, through vaults rather than through stable coins. Mm -hmm. Um, because that's, that's where we are actually able to, to earn revenue. Um, so yeah, I think those are probably the two biggest fundamental drivers. Sam, Nick, anything to add on about the, the optimizing metrics for, for MakerDAO? Which metrics are the most important? Uh, yeah, I would say um, like in the short term, uh, what Manet said, uh, we need to get sort of the interest bearing supply up uh, to replace the stablecoin supply. I would say uh, medium term uh, goal is to, uh, at least for me, is to reactivate the die savings rate start getting uh, die demand uh, growing in a more organic way. Um, and long-term, yeah, it's sort of like several orders of magnitude scaling of the die supply such that we're in sort of the uh, fiat currency scale um, as like a credibly neutral alternative. Nick, anything to add? No, I think that uh, that covers it pretty well. All right, so let's start with the supply side of things. What is the actual strategy for increasing the die supply? Uh, uh, Sam, you just talked about interest-bearing collateral. Um, so in, I think we can also talk about USDC and like the dominance inside of USDC inside of MakerDAO. Do you guys consider the dominance of USDC in Maker a problem? Uh, and if so, how? What's the plan to fix that? And overall, what is the overarching like strategy for increasing the total die supply on the secondary market? Sam, I'll, I'll start with you. Uh, okay, um, so I've uh, put out along with some of my colleagues a recent strategy to address the problem of uh, lack of sort of organic uh, dye supply uh, generation. Um, I put this out as a tweet um, and a post uh, called the aggressive growth strategy. So really this involves uh, two parts. Uh, the first is we uh, want to do a cap raise uh, sort of debt uh, or equity offering or some mix between the two. Uh, the idea behind this is uh, the surplus buffer, uh, if you can see in the image, um, this is sort of our making sure we're solvent kind of uh, number. So currently it's at 65 million and this is uh, just growth from revenues in the protocol, but we kind of want to move that up another 5x or so to like 250 million or even above. And what this gives us is the ability to basically take, uh, basically move up the risk curve and, uh, you know, take defaults on individual loans without it like breaking the protocol. And so as you can see here, we, we don't really do high risk loans all that much because um, we're kind of limited in how big they can go, but we increase the surplus buffer. We can increase the size of all these sort of more high risk loans, address a larger market and um, sort of grow the revenues in a, in a good way. 
But you know, let's, if one let's of these... camp on the uh, the surplus buffer. Can you just let's define that a little bit more? What is the sur- surplus buffer in Maker? How does it grow? Where does it come from? And and why is having a large one good? Right. Okay. So the uh, surplus buffer uh, is basically um, well. Okay, it's a buffer of dire. So let me start with I guess stability piece. So. Mm-hmm. If you open up a vault on ETH or something like that, um, and you take out a die loan, you're paying interest on that. Um, so currently it's, I think, 2.25%. So where does that go? Uh, that goes into what's called the surplus buffer. So this is basically um, an excess of die that the protocol controls, and it can be used for a couple of things. So we use it to pay for things like core units and whatnot, but it's also there just in case uh, we take a loss on one of the loans. Say one of the loans defaults and we have bad debt. Uh, this will eat into the surplus buffer, but it will, as long as the surplus buffer is larger than this bad debt, the protocol is still solvent, we're all good. Um, we can continue operation. So by growing the surplus buffer to a larger number, uh, we can sort of increase our tolerance for individual defaults. And the idea is that we spread this risk across many, many different protocols and sort of lenders and stuff like that such that uh, we have sort of independent risk on every single one of them, such that we can tolerate losses and sort of plan for them. This is more how traditional lenders work. They don't usually plan on no losses. They account for them. Um, Okay, so the the growth of the surplus buffer comes from the revenue on the interest rates, on the collateral, inside the vaults. And you say that we want to like 5x the, the supply of the surplus buffer to give Maker a larger buffer so that it can start to lean into more risky loans than it, what it currently has. Because if it can uh, uh, service more risky loans, it can also service higher interest rates on those loans. And so the idea is that a larger surplus buffer allows the protocol to get higher yield on a larger array of loans uh, without having to really increase the risk because of the supply of the, the increased supply of the surplus, surplus buffer. Is all that correct? Yes, exactly. Cool. Um, so by doing a, a cap raise, we can basically say, hey, we've got you know, t- 10 billion in DAI demand. People love DAI. We've got a very good value prop. It's, it's, it's probably gonna be very likely to uh, be able to raise capital uh, in anticipation of the future. So. Uh, you know, how we do that is some sort of combination of debt and an equity offering. Um, so yeah, basically what this gives us is the ability to experiment more, uh, integrate with more protocols, uh, under collateralized lending, reputation-based lending, loans to TradeFi, where we don't necessarily have all the legal uh, recourse in place yet. Um, these are the types of things we can do with a larger surplus buffer. And so the, we have uh, low risk loans up top and those are really big bars. And I think that just indicates the total supply of collateral inside the MakerDAO system. But those low risk loans have low interest fees. Uh, and then below that, we have the high risk loans, which doesn't have a lot of collateral because of how they're high risk. But there's a lot of interest rate. There's a lot of money to be made on those high risk loans. Uh, and so in theory, if the surplus buffer increased like 5x, uh, viewers who are watching the YouTube would, you know, you could imagine that dash, dash line moving very, very far to the right, allowing for more collateral to exist in the high risk loans, uh, which would just yield a lot more die on a yearly, uh, yearly base. Is that, is that all right? Yeah, exactly. Manet, Nick, anything you want to add or any, any additional element to, to discuss here? Uh no, but I, I did want to circle back uh, because part of your original question was uh, trying to ad- address USDC mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, what, what were we going to do about this problem? And I, and I just want to 
push back on that a little bit sure. uh, because uh, I don't necessarily see um, the maker protocol having a lot of USCC is a problem. Um, I think of it as um, a capital battery. Um, so uh, when we say like, right, uh, anyone can mint die one-to-one against USDC, right? What we're essentially saying is that uh, if DAI is trading above a dollar, right? Meaning that there is a bunch of demand for DAI relative to the supply, right? There's more demand. Uh, then anyone can go and give USDC to the maker protocol, get DAI and sell the DAI in the open market and essentially arbitrage that, that peg in balance and bring it back down exactly towards a dollar. Um, so I think that's very useful property because one, it, even though DAI has a kind of uh, market-based kind of algorithmic peg because it's not hard redeemable for dollars, uh, we essentially get an artificial hard peg to the dollar. And that's incredibly useful when you're dealing with uh, kind of more traditional uh, kind of trade fi counterparties. Um, so, okay, so we've accumulated a bunch of USDC. Um, people kind of refer to this blacklist-like risk, and I, I don't really see the difference uh, between having like 200 million of USDC versus having 5 billion of, of USDC. The, the blacklist risk, right, doesn't really change, right? It stays the same. But what you're getting out of this is one, you're getting extremely deep, deep liquidity uh, for, for DAI against dollars. And so what this really is, is a capital battery to supercharge real world asset lending. Um, so I, I know probably later you, you want to get into this a little more, right? What are we doing uh, with, with real world assets? Uh, but essentially it's maker lending, you know, against, uh, against assets that exist in the real world instead of off chain. Um, and essentially what they want to do is these lenders, they don't necessarily want DAI, right? They, they can't do anything with DAI. What they want is they want dollars for their business to go execute on some opportunity, right? And so having the ability to go to a trade file lender and be like, we have $5 billion of dollar liquidity allows us to do much, much larger deals than if those trade five partners had to try to find like OTC liquidity, right? For 200 mil or 300 mil. Sam, I see you nodding your head. Can you elaborate and just add to that uh, if, if you have anything to say? Uh, no, I, I think Nick covered it pretty well. Okay, so yeah, the, this USDC supply in in Maker, I'm I'm seeing. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm seeing 227 million uh, USD die generated from USDC, a comparable amount of USDC locked in locked in Maker DAO, and then the stability fee on that on those that 227 million is about one percent. So Maker is is charging one percent on that 227 million dollars, which you know that's a decent amount of revenue. Uh, but is that is is USD revenue from USEC collateral inside of Maker just like less revenue than your typical collateral because of how just like low risk it is? And is the idea that you still want to displace the USDC collateral with other collaterals that you can charge higher revenue for? Uh, so, so D David, I I think you're misunderstanding something. So, okay. um, 
from uh, USDC, mm-hmm. right? We are not making uh, any money, right? Oh, really? Uh, it is, it's just a swap facility, right? You can go and you swap, you give us a USDC, we give you a die. Um, if, if you want to say, okay, well, okay, there's 5 billion USDC, we're not really making any money from those. Um, I would say that that's a completely different problem, right? Okay, that's just saying, how do you monetize your balance sheet, right? And, and Monet can probably uh, explain this a little better than, than I can. So I'm going to butcher it first and he'll, he'll probably correct me and, and come up with a much more eloquent uh, explanation. Uh, but, but the way that I would describe it is uh, MakerDAO is sitting on $5 billion and can decide on how they, we want to allocate those $5 billion into some productive asset that produces yield, right? And so probably we want to look at something very low risk, something like AAA rated. So something like U.S. Treasuries, right? Where the yield will be very, very low, uh, but it's an extremely, extremely safe yield. And it's also extremely liquid. So being able to go from treasuries to dollars, right? uh, You're not going to really have any slippage, no matter what scale you're trading at, right? Even if you want to do like half a billion dollars of treasuries. So it's, it's, it's more of an opportunity of how do you want to allocate rather than a, oh, this sucks. We don't make any money off USDC. Vinay, you want to add anything to that? Um, yeah, I think um, like all else equal, USDC is, I think it's a lot less risky than many people assume. Um, but there is still, you know, some small amount of risk holding it. So um, yeah, I think it's it's a positive if we can allocate that intelligently to real world assets, maybe stuff like treasuries or other, uh, you know, kind of safe, reliable investments. And then maybe also some little bit higher risk investments once we get enough uh, surplus to really support that. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd agree that it's, it's an opportunity. Um, you know, it's just, we're methodical. So we're not just going to eat, you know, a billion dollars of USDC anywhere. We want to make sure that it's it's truly like a safer, better bet. Okay, guys, I think that covers everything on the uh, supply side. And, like the very basics are you put collateral inside of MakerDAO, you charge a fee on it, number goes up. Uh, we also have this USDC as what Nick is calling like a battery. Uh, unless there's anything else to cover on the supply side, I, I want to turn into the demand side, the other side of things, like demand for DAI. Uh, and so like putting on our like 101, explain it like I'm five hats. How does DAI demand uh, how is that good for the protocol? How is that good for MakerDAO? Uh, and then where does DAI demand come from? And how does the DAO plan on increasing DAI demand? Um, uh, anyone want to raise their hand and take this one? Yeah, Mane, go for it. Um, yeah, I think the way that I look at it is um, it's, it's kind of similar to banking, but when people are willing to hold DAI, um, they're basically lending MakerDAO money that we're then able to lend out to the the other people who are, um, you know, using our vaults to borrow money. Um, so that's that's kind of a key part of our system is when we have a lot of excess die demand, um, we can always be sure that there's you know we have the capital to lend out to people borrowing, uh, kind of like banks. You know, they they use the money from people who are depositing with them. Um, to make the loans that they're that they're then earning interest on, um, so yeah, it's a really key part of of MakerDAO. It's um, probably our biggest asset 
is that we have so many deep integrations with people like Curve and, and Compound and Aave um, that a lot of people are, are really interested and, and willing to hold DAI, even though we're not actually um, currently really paying them anything to hold it uh, through something like the, the uh, DAI savings rate. Uh, you mentioned integrations with other DeFi protocols, and I think that actually opens up a subject that I think a lot of people uh, kind of forget about. There's something different about borrowing USDC or borrowing DAI from something like Aave or Compound than there is borrowing DAI directly from MakerDAO. MakerDAO can mint DAI, whereas Compound and Aave cannot. And this is an ex uh, a huge advantage, which is in the optionality to be able to mint DAI, to control the supply of DAI. And uh, there are, you, got, you alluded to some integrations with, with Aave, and I want to turn this to Sam next. Is how, Sam, can you kind of just illustrate how those integrations with other DeFi protocols work and how the ability for Maker to actually mint DAI is a useful thing for other DeFi protocols? Uh, yeah, uh, so for Aave in particular, uh, if you remember last year uh, around April, May, um, their interest rates on all their stable coins were like skyrocketing. Uh, they went up to like even as high as 20%. And if you're taking leverage on Aave and you just get hit with that uh, intermittently, it's brutal. So one of the uh, mechanisms to alleviate this for DAI um, was that we recognized Aave was a, a very you know, reputable rock solid protocol. So we basically just extend them minting rights uh, such that they can sort of squash these excessive uh, times of uh, borrowing. So we uh, built and introduced the what's called the uh, DAI direct deposit module, or, or we shorten it to D3M in conjunction with Aave. Um, and basically uh, this module uh, enforces a, a max uh, variable borrow. And it does this by basically like as soon as if somebody borrows a bunch on Aave and the interest rate spikes, it will just shove DAI into that pool put the interest rate back down so nobody gets uh, like screwed over by this. And, and how um, does Maker pocket money in that scenario? How, is that, how does that generate revenue for MakerDAO? Uh, so it's, it's essentially just as if uh, Maker is any other lender. So we collect uh, interest rate on the lending. And like, so if, if Aave interest rate like jumps up to 20% and then they tap into Maker's credit facility, how, how much interest rate would Maker make in that scenario? Uh, uh, so it, we would enforce a max rate. So uh, we would basically, um, I, I think, what is it now? It's probably like 2.5% or something we're enforcing around there. Um, so that would be the max borrow um, we would enforce. And then uh, we would, uh, there would be some spread and then we would uh, earn some portion of that interest, you know, 1.5%. I don't know exactly what it is, but it's, yeah, it's about that. There's a, an old uh, model that, uh, old as in we haven't talked about it a lot on Bankless, but we talked about, uh, we talked about um, the, uh, the protocol sync thesis, uh, where like deep, incredibly neutral protocols are fi find themselves at the bottom of the DeFi stack and other applications are built on top of it. Uh, and so I want to get into the other integrations as well, but using that as a frame of mind for the listeners, uh, like Aave in this particular arena is built on top of MakerDAO because MakerDAO can supply Aave with the credits and with, with, that it needs in times of like a supply squeeze. 
and ultimately that value flows back to MakerDAO because of MakerDAO's ability to mint die. It's the extreme privilege. MakerDAO has its own money printer, the own ability to print money, and other protocols need to access that ability in times of supply squeezes. Um, Sam, Sam or, or Mane or whoever wants to take this one next, can we just talk about all the other uh, DeFi applications that are also integrated into MakerDAO that are leveraging this property of Maker? Yeah, so um, this is uh, sort of the general version of is exactly what you said. So the recognition that Maker's not going to be the best at everything. There's other protocols that specialize and are, are very, very good at what they do. So instead of Maker trying to do this all ourselves, let's use DeFi Legos. Let's connect all these various protocols and extend them credit lines such that we can kind of exponentially grow together. Um, so what we're focused on right now, so we have the Aave one up and it's been a great success uh, so far. Um, we are now uh, integrating with Compound to give them something similar, uh, as well as sort of newer protocols. Uh, Maple Finance, who uh, does reputation-based loans. Um, there's TrueFi, does similar things. Um, yeah, so th these are all sort of uh, protocols we'll look at. Uh, Rari uh, Fuse Pools, that's sort of a new thing uh, that's, that's pretty interesting that we're looking at. So we're, we're wanting to go wide with this and sort of just, uh, you know, switch from, you know, lending out against like uh, individual collateral assets and instead just sort of empowering others to uh, get die everywhere, basically. Yeah, and I really want to hammer that point home. It's really um, Maker can provide die liquidity as a service, right? Um, and so what really this does is it just, you know, th this goes with the, the kind of protocols like sync thesis that you were talking about, David, is it really puts Maker on a base layer below any of the other secondary lenders, right? We're a primary lender, only we can generate DAI like on demand. Uh, secondary lenders need to source liquidity, right? From somewhere, from users or from Maker. And so it's really quite synergistic, right? For Maker to be able to have these distribution channels for DAI, right? It's, it's a specialization of saying, what is Maker good at? Well, Maker is good at having this uh, really stable decentralized stablecoin called DAI. Um, and we're really good at providing, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of concentrated liquidity wherever it's needed. Um, and it's acknowledging that there is secondary lenders uh, who are better at us in, in other things, right? And they specialize, for example, in, in distribution, right? Uh, if you look at something like Aave, right? You know, how many chains has, has Aave already deployed on, right? It's, it's practically everywhere, right? And so you can have this really synergistic relationship, right? Where uh, Aave can go and, you know, deploy on all these chains and we can provide targeted DAI liquidity there. And we basically get a free distribution mechanism for DAI. I think a, a great model for understanding this, it, it feels like a central bank with commercial banks where like compound and Aave are the commercial banks that tap into the central bank's liquidity. And the cool thing about uh, maker, and again, the cool ability that being able to mint the money, being able to mint die, it allows for maker to really be like a bulk order credit facility. Like I, I think it's actually kind of skeuomorphic, um, maybe not skeuomorphic, but just like 
you know, it's just a sign that it's early that individuals are going straight to MakerDAO to open up vaults when really it's far more appropriate for things like Aave or Compound or just lar like other larger organizations to come to Maker to open up vaults and then give those, like, like you said, Nick, distribution. Uh, Maker can use all these other applications as distribution to the individual. Uh, how do we like that, that frame of reference? Is calling like MakerDAO a central bank of DeFi like appropriate or how would you guys change or amend that? I would, I would call it the decentral bank. The decentral bank. Yeah, Manet, Manet uh, tap us in here. I, I would add that um, I think maybe our, our vision is bigger than just the central bank of DeFi. Like we already have um, some of like the sort of titans of CFI, um, like Nexo and Celsius already do, you know, a lot of business with us among, you know, other DeFi protocols as well. But, um, you know, that's already kind of like a, an interesting like CDFI scaling solution that they're running where um, they're lending money to their customers on their their own closed platform but then they're sourcing all of the liquidity not all of it but some of it from maker and this uh this illustration of maker as the decentral bank of the crypto universe gets even more uh exciting in my mind when we get to the topic of real world assets which i think we definitely will we'll get there here in a second um uh, guys is there anything else that we should talk about when it comes to die demand, where die demand comes from, and like the long-term roadmap for inducing die die into the world? Uh, yeah, one, one thing I'll add is uh, the die savings rate. You know, it's kind of gone away for a bit, but I think this is a very, very critical tool that when we reactivate it, the uh, value prop for die is going to be huge compared to holding like a US dollar derivatives of other kinds. Why, why will it be so huge? Uh, it's a risk-free interest rate, right? It's just gonna like, why would I hold say USDC when I could be just earning a risk-free rate on Dai, right? And and this again kind of goes and lends itself to like, what is a new treasury? Uh, this is the the new like native dollar-denominated interest rate. Where I've always thought that. Uh, there's going to be two major interest rates in the world of crypto economics. There's going to be the ETH staking yield rate, which is going to be the risk-free rate of a non-store value asset, non-sovereign store value asset. But then there's also the die savings rate, which is the yield that you can get on dollars in, in DeFi. Um, uh, does anyone want to, to riff on that for a second? Cool. Uh, okay. Um, one okay yeah one last question I, I have for you guys is like let's zoom forward and and like kind of and this will tee us up for some um real world asset conversations and, and layer two conversations but like let's zoom forward like 10 15 20 years what do you think is like in a, in a in a world where maker is maximally successful and it's achieved all of its gold what do you think the collateral inside of maker dow looks like like what, what what would the maker overall portfolio look like in, in an ideal world where every everything about maker dow is achieved uh, is that something that is known or is that something that we kind of just need to iterate on uh nick i'll start with you um it's staked eth bitcoin and real world assets just those um, just those three things just everything else will look infinitesimally small, uh, relatively, in my opinion. You want to, can you uh, elaborate on that? Why, why will those three things be the dominant things? Um, well, ETH is the, uh, ETH is kind of like to, to me, just the, the, the future proof kind of network of networks, right? It's uh, the internet was, is a great network but it has some shortcomings, right? Uh, it doesn't really have integrated identity and it doesn't really have integrated payments. 
Um, if ETH literally just becomes a network that has integrated identity and payments, right? It's already, um, it's, it's already like such an order of magnitude improvement, right? And then you start adding in, okay, well, ETH is this global network that, right, anyone can, uh, can, can connect to, right? Uh, you have, for the first time, this concept of like a globalized liquidity pool, rather than like this fragmented kind of regional nationalized kind of liquidity. Um, and, and to me, it's just, it's, it's just clear. It's, it's obvious that there's, there's no other alternative. Um, for, for the real world asset side, it's really just acknowledging that Maker right, has this superpower of, right? And our superpower is that we can just mint die, right? And that there is incredible amount, like deep, deep liquidity of die to dollars. And as long as we have that superpower, right, we have we have no cost of capital, right? So unlike um, a traditional lender, right, which would need to somehow kind of source capital, right, to to give out loans or to uh, to finance something, right, Maker doesn't have that, um, right? We don't have that overhead, and so we're going to be able to undercharge on on these rates, um, and. That you know, on on the macro scale, is just going to allow us to be incredibly, incredibly successful uh, when it comes to financing uh, real world assets. I really like that line. You're going to be able to undercut the rates because you can mint die. You can always outcompete other lenders because getting receiving capital for Maker comes for free. It's just like one single transaction that mints a bunch of die, and Maker doesn't actually owe anything to anyone because it has the power. To mint die, so like the the Jeff Bezos, yeah, Jeff Bezos's line, uh, "Your margin is my opportunity," definitely comes to mind. Where if some commercial bank offers four percent, well, Maker can always offer three. Um, Manet, uh, Manet, Sam, any of the last comments before we go into the second half of the show? No, yeah, I'm good. Cool. All right, guys. Okay, so there's some really hot topics coming up next. Uh, wormholing between all the layer twos and the other layer ones is definitely something that we're going to talk about. Uh, and we've definitely touched on real world assets, but we're going to dive headfirst into the topic of real world assets, because I think that is something that no other credit facility, no other DeFi app is really tapping into in the same way that that maker is. And it's really the untapped field of opportunity that really only maker seems to be capturing. Uh, and, and then of course, we're going to get into the MKR token, the current tokenomics for MKR and perhaps how that might stay the same or, or might uh, migrate into something else moving forward. So those are the three big subjects where all the alpha is. We're going to get into those subjects right after we talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible. All right, guys, we are back on our MakerDAO Bull panel. Uh, again, three DAO community members uh, all talking about their perspectives of MakerDAO and really why the fundamentals are so bullish. And there's a really bullish announcement that happened uh, not too long ago. I think it came out yesterday. And Nick, I want you to take the lead on this one. Uh, MakerDAO is giving a line of credit to Tesla facilities. Maker, uh, Nick, can you kind of unpack what's going on here and how? what are the details of this? Um, yeah, so... Uh... Like you said, we we just announced this uh, this deal yesterday. Uh, really huge news, um, and it's basically facilitated by one of our real world asset partners, Six uh, S Capital, uh, led by uh, a guy called Matthew Rabinowitz, and uh, he's been a Maker community member for a long time. And and so this this is like one of those like really cool uh, kind of success stories where he saw the, the vision of, of maker and DeFi so early. And then 
one day kind of a light bulb went off where I was like, wait, like I can actually use this. Um, and so what, what uh, Success Capital is, is kind of doing here is uh, they're kind of acting as this go-between liaison. So Maker can uh, effectively interface, um, the, the Maker protocol can interface with uh, you know, borrowers like, uh, like Tesla. Uh, so in particular, what's happening here is that Tesla wants to build a network of collision repair centers. Uh, I, I believe right now in the U.S., but I, I think eventually it's supposed to be a, a global thing. Um, but they don't have the capital, right, to, uh, to, to build all of these things themselves. Um, and if you think about like them doing a capital raise, right, them trying to take out debt, well, debt on your balance sheet isn't uh, isn't the best thing right from uh, when, when when you start like analyzing the health of the company right and it would really slow down their ability to to execute on this right it's a it, it shows up as a capital expenditure um, so what they're doing is they're using credit tenant leases um, in order to raise uh, the cash to, to build these uh, so what a credit tenant lease is it's essentially saying that um, if someone were to finance uh, the construction of this, then Tesla will promise to pay uh, a certain amount of rent, right? Uh, every year um, for X number of years, um, and maybe the amount increases by Y percent every year, right? It's, uh, it's kind of, uh, each one's a little bit unique in, in that respect. And, and now, right, this isn't debt, on Tesla's balance sheet, right? It's not a capital expenditure. And now it's an operational expenditure, right? And so OPEX and CAPEX are treated very, very differently. Um, so that's why credit tenant lease is like a very um, attractive option for Tesla to scale and build out this network of collision repair centers like extremely quickly. Um, and so essentially, right, uh, what we can do is we say, okay, well, we know that Tesla is going to be um, right, paying a certain amount, right, and that's generating uh, yield. Uh, so essentially, you can kind of almost like treat this as a um, as a bond, right? There's it's a fixed income type of uh, product, right, and that has a speculative value to investors. And so Maker is willing to right supply the uh, a die loan, right, against that kind of fixed income stream. Um, and so uh, we're, we're start. I, I think right, we just announced the first deal and I think the amount is like $7.8 million, uh, but this is just the first one. Uh, we have more uh, deals uh, or well, Success Capital has more deals in the pipeline uh, with Tesla that they plan to close in the next quarter and the next two quarters uh, by the end of the year. Uh, so really, this is an opportunity that we, once it gets going, it's a flywheel, and we're just going to snowball this up, right? And, you know, the amount that Maker can lend, right? We, we said it's, it's near limitless, right? We can just mint as much die as we want. And so really, it just comes uh, down to uh, the risk perspective of how much risk exposure does Maker want to have, right, to these Tesla collision repair facilities, um, and that's that's a really good problem to have, right? Where you're saying, uh, right, oh, there's too much growth, and we, from a risk point of view, we have to throttle the growth. 
Uh, but the opportunity here is is absolutely huge, and we're uh, super stoked that uh, that this uh, finally went live. Renee, I want to get your perspectives in on this. So what, what, how does this? How should we be thinking about this in in the frame of DeFi? I, I think a lot of like um, you know cypherpunks would have be puzzled about this. It's like, wait a second, how are we getting real world assets into the world of DeFi? How does it even work? Uh, can you just like give us your thoughts on this? Like how 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 does this uh, illustrate the story of MakerDAO and what it's optimizing for? And just like, how bullish is this? Yeah, I think um, I think MakerDAO, you know, by and large, is taking the approach of like engagement, and hopefully, we can influence the entire economy that we're you know that we're living in in a real world um, to operate better, rather than trying to like strictly bifurcate ourselves or like separate ourselves from real world assets or other stable coins or anything that, you know, the government might be able to touch through a couple layers of, of interference. So, um, yeah, I think we're, we're taking the path of engagement. Um, I think maker does have like a really unique opportunity though, compared to, um, if you look at like a lender, like compound or Aave, they always need to maintain you know, and enough liquidity so that people can withdraw their money if they want to, when Maker is, you know, much less, much less constrained about that. So, um, you know, some of these, these, you know, real world asset deals like lending to finance, building something, um, they're going to need that money for a year or more. Um, and, and we have like a really unique opportunity that we're able to fund stuff for a longer commitment and um, other, other protocols, you know, they they kind of have to adjust how they work to really do that effectively. I think a, a lot of people are probably wondering how, like, legally or technically this actually happens. Like, how do we, how does Tesla pay money to MakerDAO? Like, what are, there There are legal structures in place, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure as well. And, like, how, just overall, how do real-world assets become collateral inside of a DeFi app? How does, how technically does this even work? I'm not sure who's who's most equipped to answer that, so I'll let you guys kind of figure that out. So, so David, yeah. um, it is enormously complicated, and uh, we could probably spend a whole hour talking about, well, this thing talks to that thing, is subservient to this, and there's an outside auditor here. Um, suffice to say that uh, this is a structure that was purpose-built around real-world assets, and it was purpose-built for the DAO uh, to effectively have um, as much control over where the money goes, where the money can't go, um, and how uh, it can be handled, right? Um, th this is th this didn't just kind of you know pop up out of thin air. This is the culmination of you know over a year's worth of like blood, sweat, and tears, and an enormous investment of of you know, resources of capital, right, to, to create this structure. Um, and I would say it's probably the most advanced um, real world structure, like asset structure out there today. Um, and of course, it's going to be iterated on, right? Um, we're going to want to, you know, diversify uh, to different jurisdictions as well, right? You don't want to just have concentrated, uh, you know, risk just in a single jurisdiction. But this is a huge first step, right? Because it, it shows that DeFi is not just, 
right? A tool for speculators and, uh, you know, traders or whatever, right? To, to get margin and to get leverage, right? It's really a tool that can be used in the real world, you know, to fund real tangible things. And so, you know, even though the amounts are so small, uh, the symbolism of what it means and of what DeFi can, can grow into become, I think is extremely significant. Nick, you said it was uh, extremely complicated. I just want to reiterate that it's complicated on the meat space side. This isn't like a technical smart contract complication. This is a network of legal structures uh, that you've alluded to are complicated. But if I could just press you on this, what are just really the main components that really make this thing work? Like what, what are the key unlocks that allow for real world assets to come into a smart contract in, in DeFi? Um, like, uh, where are the where do the actual assurances lie that these real world companies are actually going to pay a DeFi protocol? Are there any just like key components of these legal structures that that stand out that that we could talk about? Um, so, so I, I would I would say of note is that uh, there is a fiduciary, right, uh, who is not who is you know kind of like think of them as like an independent kind of party. And they are, you know, legally required, right, to kind of do uh, what is in the interest, right, of their, uh, of, of how you've structured this agreement, right? And so it doesn't matter what uh, some meat space partner wants, right? It is, uh, the fiduciary has to execute, like, the uh the, the, the kind of legal will of, of like this constitutional document. And so every step of this has basically been designed to protect maker, right? And so how the, the money can move and how money can be replaced, right? Uh, there, there is literally a mechanism for the DAO, right? To do a governance vote, to send a message to someone who then, and that message is required, right, to execute on an action, right? They're legally not allowed to do anything without, you know, this, this signal by governance. So it's literally been designed end to end just to have uh, makers uh, interests basically uh, aligned at every step and protected. Yeah, so there's smart contract innovation in DeFi, but this really seems like legal so I mean, legal contract innovation in, in the real world. And when we, when we get into the subject of bridging real world assets into DeFi, we must ultimately talk about normal paper, pen and paper contracts, not just smart contracts. Manay, I saw you, you raised your hand. Do you want to add uh, anything onto how this kind of legal structure works? Um, no, but I was, well, I guess just a short thing is that I think it, you know, maybe for DeFi native people, it helps to like think of this kind of like a bridge where like you need some sort of um, like almost like an Oracle uh, to kind of take the messages from from the blockchain, like how MakerDAO is voting and then execute that uh, in another domain uh, in the real world. Um, but there are there are companies that, you know, in a more like TradFi context have been doing this for years, like trust companies, basically, they're just supposed to like take info from one contract or like another domain and then execute it. Um, so I think that we're just figuring out how to like use all of these pre existing mechanisms to to our best effect. Nick, you said that this is a really complicated, how easy is this to scale out? Like, 
if it's complicated, can, is it easily reproducible? Uh, you, you talked about like, you know, perhaps we can iterate on this model and make it more efficient. Uh, how, how is this going to go? I think you said something like $7 million deal with the first Tesla uh, facility, but then that, that can roll from there. Is this model that this legal structure that's been created, can this just kind of be like replicated over and over and over again for many, many different types of real world assets? How, how easy is it to reproduce this in order to scale the size of real world assets inside of MakerDAO? Um, it, it's totally replic replicatable, right? Uh, the, the difficult part is constructing it Right and is uh, ensuring right that that it works right that all the parties um, right are are doing their their roles and are comfortable with with the actions that they're supposed to take right. But once you have this up and running right, uh, you can definitely just clone this to to different parties. And so uh, I want to go back and take a frame of reference as like the decentral bank of the internet, but now put this into a context of. There are, are bridges, as Manet said, there's bridges between real world assets and like this decentral credit facility that, that's based on the internet. Uh, Nick, Nick, you've talked about like one of the, the long-term goals of collateral inside of Maker is Bitcoin, Ether, and real world assets. Like is the position for MakerDAO to be, to kind of like rug pull the actual central bank uh, and allow people to, rather than having to go to their commercial banks, or, or even the commercial banks having to go to the central bank is, is like MakerDAO positioning itself to be the new credit facility of the digital age? I, I, I wouldn't describe it as a rug pull, right? It's, <laughs> just, uh, it's just more competition and uh, consumers will win, right? Because ultimately it'll lead to lower rates for, for everyone, right? Uh, so that's how, that's how capitalism works, right? And, uh, you know, lower rates, Right, we can uh, we can fund more things. We can do more good in the world, right? And uh, the world can can advance and innovate quicker. Okay, you said innovate uh, and and compete with the central bank of the United States of America. And like the the thing about the central bank is that it has a complete monopoly because it is the only bank in America in in the West that can print money, except for MakerDAO. MakerDAO. Uh, the only other like institution that I can think of that can print new money is MakerDAO. I mean, there's other decentralized stable coins like UST, and we can talk about that. But like, this is a, the new level of competition that the central bank of, of the United States has never, ever had before because no one else has the legal right to print money. But now in the world of DeFi, we, we have this ability to do that. Uh, and so this is kind of one, of one of the bull cases for MakerDAO is they are the first credit facility to offer competition to a whole entire central bank that co controls the world reserve currency. Um, uh, any, any comments or thoughts on that? I think it's, uh, I think it's very collaborative too, as well as competitive though. Mm. Um, I, I look at maker sort of like a little bit like commercial banking where um, we can, we can mint as much die as we like, but we do actually need somebody who is willing to own that die. Um, to kind of balance the the supply that we're making versus you know the demand that there exists in the market, um, so we're we're operating a lot like a commercial bank. Um, you know, we we create money, but it's all still kind of underlaid by the actual you know U.S. dollar that that's getting made by the Fed. Um, I think the the collaborative part is that um, we're totally expanding the the breadth of people that actually have the ability to own US dollars. Um, so people in you know, Venezuela or other Latin American countries or just any, anywhere around the world where um, dollars and reliable you know, 
financial services are not available. Um, now they can they can own Dai, they can use Dai, and um, you know that ultimately does kind of anchor back to the the uh, U.S. dollar system at least while we're we're pegged to the dollar. So I think it's um, you know I think it's kind of uh, giving competition to like commercial and central banks, but also um, kind of a tailwind for for the U.S. economy. I would say. So I think one last angle on this real world asset conversation before we get into layer two, two, two stuff. Um, I think some people would say like, oh, like if you're going to integrate real world assets, you're just going to become regulated, right? You're the real world instantiations means that the regulators are just going to, it's going to be super easy for the regulators to come knocking. Uh, and so, you know, the bear case is that well, MakerDAO will just become, you know, a regulated DeFi entity. And that's not really crypto. That's not really, you know, DeFi. That's not really crypto. Um, the other, the bull case, the bull argument, I think, is that, well, if you integrate so much of real-world assets into MakerDAO, you kind of become too big to eliminate from a regulatory standpoint, and you actually are playing very, very nicely with the real world, abiding by, like, real-world legal structures and, and playing inside the real-world game. So I'm, I'm wondering your guys' thoughts on on this, like, this bear versus bull debate about what it means to uh, actually integrate the real world into the maker system. Is it, does it provide like a regulatory shield or is it a uh, regulatory weakness as in like a, it's actually a risk for MakerDAO from the regulatory standpoint? Uh, who wants to take this one? Sam? Uh, yeah, so in terms of regulation, I would say sort of uh, in what jurisdiction, that's, it, that's important. So like if we were just in one jurisdiction, I mean, this could be a problem, um, but like I'm a big fan of, we need to play nice with regulators but if we go wide in terms of uh, like geographic, political uh, diversity, um, they'll be incentivized to play ball with us, right? And we're, like, I, I'm not a big fan of sort of like, you know, crypto anarchy and stuff like that and fighting against regulation. I think we should embrace it and we should work with regulators to make sure the whole world can benefit from DeFi and not just keep it as sort of a, a niche product. Yeah. So, do you think some like the the products that MakerDAO is building with for real world assets will make uh, people like Elizabeth Warren warmer to DeFi? Is that perhaps an angle we can take? I don't know about Warren, but I think <laughs> um, I think it can win hearts and minds generally. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe for people who have like less personal stake in uh, <laughs> in sort of combating crypto, but. Um, yeah, I think it's, you know, when we can show, hey, like, we financed X many hundred jobs in your district uh, for like all the different people who are working in government, it's got to have an impact. All right, guys, I think it's time to get into the layer 222 side of things. And Sam, I'm going to throw this one to you. Generally speaking, what is Maker's Layer 2 strategy? And is this time to talk about wormholing? Uh, yeah, sure. So I'll pull up a diagram here. Um, so yeah, uh, Maker is uh, incredibly focused right now on sort of the multi-chain future. Uh, we see it as all but inevitable at this point. Um, so like initially uh, we are, uh, we've deployed uh, canonical die bridges on Optimism, Arbitrum and uh, StarkNet. But the plan is to basically go to wherever the users are. And this includes uh, side chains. If people wanna use it, you know, Maker should be available there. Um, it, it's, it's up to the users. Um, so, like this, this kind of plays in with this, if you see in the diagram, sort of like this uh, D3M module uh, type strategy where we can basically just have the core of MCD uh, extend uh, 
uh, credit out to these, uh, uh, what we call domains, but you can think of them as chains, uh, to Arbitrum, Optimism, Starknet, Polygon, uh, Avalanche, whatever it happens to be, and then empower these uh, other protocols that people are using and they love to basically mint die. Of course, we have to take risk into account, so we extend uh, only certain uh, levels of credit. Now, with Wormhole, this is the other uh, new product we've been working on for the past year, uh, which we're actually just rolling out the first phase of this uh, uh, just in the coming weeks. Um, so once Wormhole is fully uh, deployed across all these chains, uh, what it allows for is essentially a super highway of liquidity between all these chains. Um, because again, it goes back to our superpower, we have the right to mint. We, can, we have zero cost of capital, so that uh, if somebody wants to jump from Arbitrum to Optimism, uh, all they have to do is signal to us the intent, and then our Oracle network will basically say, uh, sign messages saying this is okay, and we can mint the die immediately on the other chain. We do not require liquidity providers, and uh, so we think this is our big advantage. Essentially, uh, other than some sort of technical details, we can offer uh, this for free. People can go from chain to chain with, and is once the uh, security models are uh, solidified for these L2s in particular, uh, the debt ceilings can be raised to pretty much infinity as these uh, chains basically inherit uh, Ethereum security at that point. So let me make sure I, I get this right. For every single like EVM compatible chain or anything that can hook into Ethereum, uh, there is the ability for uh, MakerDAO to like replicate its credit facility on every single chain. Uh, so die minting can happen natively on every single chain and it's the same die across the chain. And so you don't actually do, how do the actual canonical bridges of layer twos, like between Ethereum layer one and Optimism or Ethereum layer one and Arbitrum, are, how are these relevant or are we just like skipping right over the bridges? Yeah, this is an important point. So uh, in order to make DAI fungible uh, and give minting rights on it on these uh, other chains, we need to deploy what's called canonical DAI. Mm -hmm. um, this is slightly different than your sort of uh, out of the box, uh, what we call wrapped tokens, which are basically just generic uh, ERC-20 bridge where people can deposit, lock their funds in the uh, uh, L1 and then mint new uh, tokens that look and feel like the original one. We do a similar thing, but we also get this, uh, we also can pre-mint some extra die on the uh, L1 escrow and then give minting rights to multi-collateral die, which is deployed on the L2. So it's a little bit different in that regard. Okay, okay. Well, and so what would happen if the canonical bridges broke, for example? Uh, would, is that a risk for, you know, that's a risk for most people because that's how they get to and from the, the layer one to layer two. Does that change the risk parameters for MakerDAO? Yes, so uh, people just bridge normally. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's permissionless, it's up to them. If the uh, chain they're going to is compromised, uh, user funds will be lost. And you know, we have no control over that, nobody does. It's like just the permissionless uh, nature of uh, the ecosystem. Now for die that uh, we pre-mint into the uh, bridge, that could potentially be stolen. And that would be uh, in the sort of worst case scenario where the chain is compromised. Now, how we limit that is we use debt ceilings on all of these as chains sort of solidify their uh, security. Um, we can continually raise these, but if we're uh, concerned about these types of hacks, we can limit our exposure uh, via debt ceilings and on the wormhole in particular, we can say, you know, from this chain, uh, let's say, I don't know, I've got some side chain that's, you know, not very well known and I'm wanting to go to Arbitrum. We would set 
the uh, Arbitrum die that we're minting from that source chain that we're not too sure about to some low number. So people can do it, but if it's compromised, we'll shield ourselves in that way. And the bottom line is that maker holders are uh, responsible for this loss. We make sure we do not uh, put this loss on the die holders. Uh, so the maker holders are making a decision on which what the debt ceilings are. They should be responsible for the loss if they make a mistake. Can I put like Ether into the Ethereum L1 maker instance and then mint die on like uh, any of the other maker replicas? Like if I have a thousand dollars of Ether collateral in the main maker DAO, can I mint 500 die on like Arbitrum? Yeah, this uh, cross uh, sort of uh, lending thing. I've been hearing more about that. We have no plans at this moment, uh, but it's something we're uh, sort of initially investigating. Uh, it could very well be in the near future. Neat, neat. Uh, Manet or, or Nick, anything you guys want to add to this layer two conversation? Uh, no, Sam is the Sam is the layer two man. He's uh, he's our god. I think um, maybe only one thing I'd add is just it's like exciting to think that we can kind of balance uh, liquidity needs and rates across all of these different domains. Um, not only with Wormhole, but we can use stuff like the D3Ms to target specific interest rates on different platforms. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, we're just going to bring a ton of utility to all of these L2s. Amazing. All right, guys, this is, uh, I want to bring our, uh, unless there's anything else to talk about in the layer two section, I think what we want to get into the final topic, which is the MKR token and MKR tokenomics. First question I want to ask is how much revenue is MakerDAO as a, as a platform making right now? And then how does that relate to the value of the MKR token in its current form? Um, Manet, can I throw this one to you? Yeah, so um, I think we're earning currently around um, like $60 million in profit. Um, and then we- On a yearly basis? You know, on a yearly basis. Um, and, you know, we have overheads, we have, um, you know, numerous core unit teams that we're, we're paying for. Um, so the actual amount of stability fees that we're earning is is significantly above that. I want to say it's over 100 million, or I'm not actually certain right now, but it's, uh, it's a pretty significant amount. Um, so yeah, we're, we're very strong from like a, a revenue and earnings standpoint. And then how does all of this revenue translate into the MK, the value of the MKR token on the secondary markets? So in theory, um, if we have met our goal for how much we want to have saved in that surplus buffer, anything above that, we, we use to buy back MKR tokens and, and burn it. Um, and you know, as a regular MKR holder, what that means is that your percent ownership of the protocol goes up a little bit whenever Maker is burning tokens. So it's almost like you're passively being you know, distributed that income. Um, I think at the moment we're actually not burning because we want to build up those reserves even more so that we can, you know, take on more risks and then hopefully over time just kind of accelerate our earnings potential uh, even more. Is this going to be the tokenomics model for Maker going forward? Uh, I've heard some clamoring. Some there's been debate about the how the the burn the buyback and burn model maybe doesn't um, actually capture value all that well. I'm wondering if you guys have any thoughts on on the. Uh, the future of the MKR tokenomics model. So, so there's been several um, new tokenomics uh, kind of proposals. 
Um, actually, there was there was one I think even just like a couple of weeks ago from um, from Andreessen Horowitz from from A16Z, uh, where, where where they came up with a model, and uh, I believe even uh, Runa, right? Runa is the, uh, the the co-founder of Maker, even uh, leaked kind of some uh, some of his own ideas. Uh, I think yesterday or two days ago in in the Discord around uh, uh, some some potential tokenomics changes. So. Um, I, I would very much say there, there's a lot of different ideas on implementations, um, but I, I wouldn't say there's a solid consensus yet on, on which direction that, that the community wants to go yet. Is there a consensus that uh, change is wanted, even though we don't know what sh- the change should be? Is there a consensus that we should move into something else? I, I, I think so. Um, I, I think the burn mechanism was... Um, was was good for uh, when it was created because it showed a clear uh, transfer of value right from the protocol back to the token holders. Uh, remember that you know in 2015, 2016, you know uh, this was when you had utility tokens, right? You know you uh, uh, people were trying to make their tokens as useless as possible, right? You know to uh, make sure ensure that you know this could never be misconstrued as a security. Right, so uh, the the burn mechanism at the time was already fairly, I think, revolutionary in that respect. Um, but I think it's it's shown to be rather dated, right? Um, and because it incentivizes the wrong things, right? Um, it, w- when you're burning MKR, right, you're really um, what w- what really happens, right, is there's an auction that gets triggered, right? There's a certain amount of die that's up for auction, and people bid with their MKR, right. And uh, whoever wins the auction, right, they get the die and the auction that, uh, that the, the MKR that the auction returned from the bidder, right, that gets burned. Uh, the, the problem here is that this kind of incentivizes, right, uh, the people who uh, are selling their MKR. And this is almost like the, the wrong incentive that you want to create, right? You don't really want to... Um, you don't really want to incentivize people to sell, right? If anything, you want to uh, incentivize the holders, right? And so I, I think there's a lot more interesting crypto economic uh, kind of uh, innovations that we've had, like in recent years, right? That that we can um, that, that that we can implement. Um, primary one being, right? You wanna you wanna incentivize the holders, right? So you want to incentivize, you know, uh, locking up and uh, serving as some kind of sponge or sink, right, for, for the tokens on the, on the sell side. One of my favorite things about uh, the MakerDAO protocol is there's just so many data and so much data and numbers to be able to consume. Uh, one of my favorite websites is uh, makerburn.com, which I'm going to ask for uh, Sam to pull up here in, in a second. Uh, there's just so much, so much numbers to be able to, to look at. Uh, and uh, this uh, definitely what kept me entertained during the uh, the bull the bear market of 2018 to, to 2020. Uh, I just want to kind of zoom out and get like a gist for the fundamentals, right? The current state of the fundamentals of the MKR token. Sam, can you kind of just walk us through what we're seeing on the screen here and allow uh, help viewers interpret what it means to uh, what what the fundamentals of the MKR token are? Uh, yeah. So uh, as you can see, uh, some of the stuff we previously talked about, um, as you can see in the top, uh, you know, there's a countdown to 10 billion die. There's the uh, surplus buffer, which we talked about previously. 
uh, we can see the total dye supply, which uh, we're just shy of 10 billion. I think we actually crossed it not too long ago, but we've slightly retraced. Um, as well, you can see the system surplus, which is actually uh, kind of synonymous with the surplus buffer. This is the amount of uh, sort of extra dye we have to take on losses and protect the system. Um, we also have annual profit estimate here. Uh, this is, uh, you know, make or burn the guy who does this. He's like compiled everything, right? Like it's sort of, uh, you can see it here actually, it takes into account stability fees, uh, liquidations, uh, even sort of uh, stuff that's kind of a little bit off chain, uh, sort of how much the core units cost, um, as well as like maker vesting and uh, the DSR. So this is actually a profit estimates. It's not revenues. Um, so that's pretty interesting. You could see like PE numbers and stuff here. Um, it's pretty low. Um, then you see the maker price down here. Um, yep. Let's go back. Uh, and maker burn uh, tokens burned so far on the bottom right here. Uh, so we've burned 2.24% of the supply. Um, there's some amount sitting in the uh, treasury as well. Um, yeah, 83,000. These are sort of like famously uh, given from the foundation to the Dow uh, back in, I think that was August of last year as the uh, Maker Foundation dissolved. Um, so yeah, th this site's really great for a breakdown of like what's going on in detail. Uh, the guy who runs this, uh, he's doing an awesome job. And so I, I think this uh, gets me into my very last set of questions, the costs of the protocol. Uh, there are MakerDAO core groups is what I, I think you guys call them. And it's one of the very unique things about the DAO, the MakerDAO, in the sense that it's not, you know, a discord with 10, you know, 50 people all doing work. It's actually different organizations that are all focused on their one particular set of goals. And then they lobby the central org, the central DAO for capital, right? Saying, hey, this is the work that we're doing. Please give us capital. Can you guys just talk about that model and how it's unique? And, and uh, also, can we illustrate some, some like, um, these, are, these are the costs of the protocol, right? The, we got to fund the salaries, got to pay the bills. Uh, so how much do all of these core groups cost the protocol? And maybe you guys can just talk about why this model of a, of a DAO structure is advantageous at large. Uh, who wants to take this one? Uh, I think I can do it, right? Uh, so, so David, right? What is the, what do what are DAOs optimized for, right? How are DAOs different from companies, right? Uh, companies optimize for efficiency, and DAOs optimize for resiliency, right? So, if you're going to do a DAO, and then still just be some kind of company in on the legal end, uh, it, it it doesn't really make any sense, right? You're kind of just doing DAO like decentralization theater, right? Uh, if you want to be a real DAO, if you want true decentralization, you cannot have a top-down hierarchy. You cannot have, right, uh, everyone in, in this same legal entity. Like to get that resiliency, you really have to have this type of hub and spoke model where it's really just these different autonomous groups, right? Um, you know, it, it, it's almost like, right, to, if, if something happened to me, right, it, it wouldn't be a problem, right? Because uh, someone else can just come in and be like, well, you know, we're, uh, I'm, I'm leading the Oracle Core unit now, or um, if I go, you know, rogue, or I'm deciding, you know, I, I hate this shit or whatever, right? Anyone else can go and just like, say like, you know what? Hey, Dow, um, I'm gonna do Oracles for you from now on, right? And this is the amount of budget I'm gonna need in order to pull it off, right? Do you approve, right? And 
what you eventually want to build this into is you don't even want just like, you know, one like smart contracts team, one Oracle's team, one risk team, one real world asset team. You really want just like redundant and redundant layers of different teams, right? In different geographical areas, locations, right? Um, all kind of, uh, you know, just adding layers and layers and layers of extra resiliency. Um, and, and that's really where this, this core unit model comes from. Um, it's just these, these isolated operating units. And while I would say that, you know, it's, it's not all flowers and rainbows, right? You know, there, there are disadvantages to working in this kind of like distributed fashion. I would say coordination, right, becomes, uh, is something that centralized corporations do a lot better than kind of like distributed decentralized DAOs, right? Uh, that's, that, that's just the trade-off you make for resiliency. Um, and so I would argue that anyone who's doing a DAO that's not doing it this way, right, is, is really not being true to, you know, and taking advantage to the innate benefits of being a DAO. Sam or Renee, guys want to add any perspectives as to the structure of, of MakerDAO? Um, yeah, I think, um, in my view, Maker has like a really good balance of trying to not be too um, like centralized and too hierarchical like a company, but then also um, not trying to be too flat of an org. Like some DAOs, I think, um, you know, it ends up just kind of everything is like bike shedding. Um, and I think we have a good balance of, you know, we have clear accountability that runs up to the, the token holders and the delegates. Um, teams have their own kind of accountability that they are able to like figure out themselves because um, they're kind of self-sovereign. Um, and yeah, I think it's it's like a really good mixture of like really distributed, but also not not falling into like the flat org, uh, like curse or psyop or whatever you want to call it. Sam, I want to let you uh, take this home for us. Let's zoom all the way back out and just view this whole entire episode, this whole podcast and from a bird's eye view and especially MakerDAO from, from you know, a, a bird's eye view. Why bullish MakerDAO? Uh, I mean, so many things uh, from like, I guess our strategy to branching out into the real world, um, sort of, uh, there's just so much opportunity out there. Like we are just scratching the surface and, you know, Maker uh, as per usual is kind of taking the lead. We expect others to come along with us. Uh, but yeah, it's sort of getting into this much bigger market, uh, like sort of spearheading that. Um, and sort of providing, I would say, the uh, backbone infrastructure for modern day DeFi, uh, which I view as sort of incredibly uh, diverse set of uh, chains and sort of connecting them all together, provide like these basically being the liquidity powerhouse of uh, multi-chain uh, DeFi. Guys, this has been a fantastic panel. Thank you for, for coming on and helping me uh, illustrate the bull case for, for MakerDAO. Uh, bankless listeners, you know what to do. Uh, like and subscribe. That's how we get the views. And uh, if you guys, like I said in the beginning in the intro, if you think that there's a DAO or organization or token that has really bullish fundamentals, yet the market isn't appreciating it, assemble a team, put, a, put some notes together, hit us up on Twitter, We'll make a show about this. Sam, Manet, and Nick, thank you for coming on and, and kicking off this new series that we're doing out of Bankless uh, and, and really helping us illustrate the, the bull case for MakerDAO. Thanks so yeah. much, David. All right, cheers, guys. Uh, Bankless listeners, thank you so much for, for tuning into the show. 
as always, this is not financial advice. Crypto is risky. Bitcoin is risky. Ether is risky. DeFi is risky. MakerDAO is risky. Uh, you can lose what you put in. Uh, but this, uh, we are headed west. It's not for everyone. We are glad you are with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot.